Kirtov, good morning. It is so good to see everybody. We're going to be learning today um, and uh, on the topic of, we're starting a new series which is uh, um, analyzing, appreciating the thought of our Lord Jonathan Sachs. We are for, uh, shortly approaching his first yard site, which is wow. and, uh, it, quite, quite something um, to, to even think about. And that is going to be on Chof Mar Cheshvan, which is in a week and two days. Actually, just in case you're uh, uh, planning the cal- uh, for the calendar, we are hosting in, in our shul. We're going to, uh, um, we are going to be doing a, your, a community yard site program here in our shul, which will be, uh, um, we're going to have multiple sessions it's going to be a very beautiful thing, so look out for that later today or tomorrow for the, for the details of that program here on the South Shore. Tens of shuls and schools um, are getting together, um, and uh, it should be an alias neshama um, for him, for Harav Yaakov and Dov Aryeh. But while, while we're moving in that direction, I thought that it might be better for myself to, um, to let's, let's, let's take a few weeks. Let's learn, start learning and appreciating some of the ideas, some of the thought. I'd like to, uh, to start off by thanking... Um, Steve and Leah Rocklin, who are sponsoring today's share, and that is in honor of a very special arrival in Israel of Raya Margalit. Um, and uh, and uh, she um, just born to Mark and Orly in Israel, Be'ezer Hashem. She should have continued smachos, continued health in the entire Mishpacha, always. I'd um, also like to, to take a moment to learn to, um, today for. Um, the Rafua Shlema of Noah Shachar Bas Abigail Shishev Rafua Shlema Bakarov. So let's 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 start the the, the learning. I know that uh, there, there is there is Kemach outside. It's just arrived late, but I'm going to continue because because I'm in Torah I'm Kemach. Um, so we're going to be doing the the uh, uh, the following idea. We're looking at a, a general themes in the writings and the ideas of our sex or our sex such a revolutionary thinker, such an unbelievable um, individual in insight. And this idea clearly shaped his world and shaped the world around him. And I think it's something which certainly has changed my, my perspective, my outlook on life altogether. And so it starts off, I'd like to, to actually trace an idea through three of his books. Rabbi Sachs wrote, wrote many, many books. But I'd like to trace one particular <coughs> idea in development over the, state of the course of a number of years through first his book, A Letter in the Scroll, to A Heal of Fractured World, and then finally to The Great Partnership. So it's, a, it's just following the same idea as it develops through his thought, and as he develops the, the, this particular idea. So let's start at the beginning. We can start in A Letter in the Scroll. Um, it's interesting that this book actually is, uh, this is the American title of the, of, the, of the book. It is called, thank you so much. Um, it is actually called, originally written, called Radical Then Radical Now, talking about Judaism. It's about the uniqueness of Judaism. It is a, a, a require, required reading for any thinking Jew. So they're just absolutely necessary. Beautifully written, easy to access. Some of the books are not easy to access. The next two are less accessible than the letter in the scroll. This is, this is, this is written in a way that's meant to for the, the average person, the average Jew to understand their heritage and why this is so significant. In it, he has a chapter called A Palace in Flames, and that's the focus that we're going to be looking at right now. This is just a completely beautiful perspective. It relates um, to the journey of Avram and Sarah. And it's so interesting, because when you think about Abraham and Sarah, who turned out to be the patriarchs, um, who turned out to be the patriarchs of, this, uh, of this people, um, it is interesting they are not like your average, your typical heroes and heroines 
of Greek mythology, of pagan culture, where you have a warrior, where you have a king, where you have a statesman. Abraham and Sarah, to, for, for, the, for the most part, lived in a very complex arena. They lived, li lived somewhat of a pedestrian life where they made a journey to a, based on a covenantal relationship with God to a new place where they didn't necessarily have the wherewithal. They navigated drought and war and internal skirmishes and family politics. And they lived a very complicated but regular life. They weren't warriors. They weren't these great mythological heroes. And, and yet somehow their journey changed their world. It changed the dialogue of humanity. It changed the morality, the moral compass and direction of all of human culture. And one has to ask oneself as we read, as we re read in the Torah yesterday in Lech Lecha, we're told Hashem calls out, Vayamar Hashem el Avraham, Avram, I want you to take this journey, a journey which will change the course of humanity. Right now, the three faiths which, uh, which adopt Abraham constitute almost half of the world's population. Um, the, the faith of Judaism and the, the two spin-offs, Christianity and Islam, which took their own perspective, but they, uh, they, they took Abraham and Sarah with them. This journey, this journey uh, was... Uh, was, was a seismic change in the way that the world thinks about paganism versus monotheism, power versus rights. And so one has to ask this, uh, the question is, is wh where did God get this from? How did, how did God know that Abraham was this person that was worthy of this journey? Where, based on what? What credentials, what potential did Abraham and Sarah, did they represent that Hashem felt that it was, was, the, was uh, worthy of such a such a challenge, such a destiny. So there are Medrashim which, which fill in the gap because the Torah doesn't seem to give it to us explicitly, although there are indicators. One Medrash we famously know, and this is what we're taught in kindergarten, is that Avraham Avinu was the one who at the, at the age, at a, at a young age, started looking up and he saw the sun and he said, the sun must be the all-powerful being in this world. But then the sun was eclipsed by night, so it must have been the moon. And then the moon was eclipsed and so uh, by, by, by the sun, and then there was the, the clouds, and then there was the wind, and there were the mountains. And at a certain point, a Abraham said to himself, there must be something bigger. And he arrived at the theological truth of there being a monotheistic power that controls all the world. That's the most, uh, the mo the, the, the most basic understanding. Abraham Zavino's philosophical, um, his philosophical journey in discovering God. And there are books written about him. There's children's books. We have a little book in our house called Little, a little Abraham. Right, little Avraham, and it's about this, this, this particular midrash. There are other midrashim which go further to say that when Avraham Avinu arrived at his conclusion, therein he challenged the norms of his own home. So his father happened to be not just a pagan, but a pagan facilitator. He sold idols, so he was the one who destroyed the idols in his father's house. And that led to, of course, an a, a event where Avraham Avinu had to make a decision about self-sacrifice versus um, does he believe in these values enough to jump into the fire at Ur Kastim and he did so, thereby establishing his belief. So these are sort of the prerequisites that are, that are given according to many Midrashim. There is a lesser known Midrash, and this Midrash is a very curious one, and here's how it reads. It's in source 2 in our, in our, in our handout today. So we hear the following. Amar this is in Bereshis Rabba Perek Lamentes, Parashat Lamentes. There was a, the parable is an individual is walking from place to place. And he sees a palace or a large building which is in flames. So the individual says it must be that this building has no owner, for it is burning. And the owner of the building 
peeks his head out and says, I own this building. Avram Avinu at the beginning of his life thought, perhaps this world is leaderless. There's no one who's in charge of this world. And God looks out and says, I am the controller, the owner of this world. That's how the Midrash runs. So what does this Midrash mean is a very complex topic of discussion. So there are those who say, there are those who argue that the idea of fire is the idea of light. This is Avram Avinu discovering the light of God. Which is a little bit of a, a misinterpretation of the Midrash because then what about the building, right? Why do you need to have the building? And fire doesn't sound like it's something which is illuminating. It sounds uh, yeah, something which is destructive. Number two, there are, other, there are others who hold that this is really essentially the same argument as the first Midrash uh, that, that, we, that, uh, that we just looked at for a, a second ago. And that is, this is the argument by design. Avram Avinu looks at the entire world and he sees how sophisticated the ecosystem it is and how complex every intricacy is in every, every, um, every different domain, every different area in the world has its own ecosystem and its own climate and everything is so perfectly tuned. And Avram Avinu says, wow, look at this incredible creation. It must be that there is a manhig. There must be a leader of this world and it's the argument by design. The problem with that interpretation of the Medrash is that it ignores the flames, right? So if that's the case, then look at a great building and just say, look, oh, wow, look at the Art Deco, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, um, decoration. But, but it, it, it must have been somebody, but it, that's not what the Midrash is saying. So the, what, what about Rabbi Sachs argues, and this is in A Letter in the Scroll, and this is such a profound, it's such a profound tool at looking at life, is he says that, that really what the, what the, what's being argued over here is that Avram Avinu is looking at the complexity of the world that we have. On the one hand, yes, it is a sophisticated building. It has to have had some architect. It has to have had someone, some being who willed this into power. Yet at the same time, it's burning. That's the part that we're missing in the interpretation. What Avram Avinu is arguing and questioning is the following. Why is it that the world is burning? Why is it if it's such a perfect system, is there so much evil? Is there so much destruction? Is there so much wanton cruelty? Is there uh, genocide? Is there, is there human torture? Unnecessary domination of might over right? Why does that exist if God really wanted the world to exist? And really, in, in asking this question, really there's two different avenues of thought he, he presents. One avenue of thought is that really, truly, truly speak, is speaking, there is no God. There can't be a God of justice in a world of injustice. It can't be in a world where you have warlords who take over large swaths of humanity and treat human beings as vehicles towards their own self-embetterment and power. There cannot be a God. There are too many flames for there to be a building, essentially. And that's really the one extreme of what humanity has arrived at when looking at the problem of this complex and dif difficult and destructive world. And then there are other people who say, there's another camp who say, you know what? Evil isn't really evil as you see it, because it must be that this is actually, in the bigger perspective, in the longer term, if this is really the crucible of growth. It's the necessary prerequisites for the, the, the growth of the world and the, and the outcome of eternity and, leg, and the destiny of this world. And really, therefore, ultimately, what you see as suffering is really not suffering. It's, a, it's, it's the necessary steps to get to a, to, a, to a greater place. In that place, in a certain sense, what that argument would do was it would eclipse the flames, and we say there's only a building. What you think is the flames is perhaps not really, it's really a metaphor, it's, a, it's an image. Maybe perhaps even 
our existence is an image because it's not really real. The flames aren't real either. And Rav Sachs argues that either of those two extremes is inadequate. Is there a possibility that's not binary? This is a fascinating argument. Is, is it possible in the, to move away from the Greek system of logic, which is the, the rule of excluded middles, where there's only one option versus the other option, it's either flames or it's a palace, is it possible in Jewish thought that there can be both? Is it possible to look at a complicated world and realize that the world must have a creator? There must be an organizer, an orchestrator, an architect, a, a power that is guiding the force of humanity throughout history. Yet at the same time, to live with the constant problem of the flames that are allowed to burn it up. Can we exist in such, in such a world? That is the question that Avram Vinu is asking. I'm saying there's another sense that Hashem gave us Bechira. That's what Bechira is about. Oh good, so we'll get to that in a, in a, in a second as to why. Okay? But just for this moment, of, yeah, let's just appreciate the difficulty of, the, of, of, of what, witnessing this. What makes Avram Avinu the requisite platform for the communication of Lech Lecha is the fact that he can look at both of these and hold these two truths together. And he can question how it can be. He can question how I can have a sophisticated world around me, clearly created by the infinite almighty being, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and yet at the same time it's burning, Human beings are destroying it at its very roots and ignoring the fact that they're doing it. And there's no justice for those who are unjust. At the same time, being able to see the two. And Avraham Avinu asks that question. What's interesting about the question that Avraham Avinu asks is the answer that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives. What is the answer that, 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 that is given in this Medrash to this, this very difficult question? Hashem just says, the Balabira looks out and says, I'm here. <laughs> the answer Avram Avinu would have liked to have had was what? What would Avram Avinu liked to have heard when asking this question? There's no Baal Habir. What was that? There is no Baal So one answer would be there's no Baal Habir. There's no, uh, but that's, that, that, that's, the, that's towards atheism. What is the answer that he wished that God would have perhaps given? The answer is, as Hashem says, I'm working at it. Perhaps you don't see the answer, right? I'm, I'm doing something. Right, but that, there's a plan. But essentially that's the second answer where it's only the palace, there's no real flames. That's denying the flames. What is Hashem's real answer? Hashem's answer is, I'm here. Which means in a certain sense, actually it's the beginning of a dialogue between the infinite and the finite. Where Akash Baruch Hu in a certain sense is actually asking, where are you? If the owner of the building is not doing anything, he's not pulling the fire alarm, he's not calling the fire brigade, he's not doing anything. What is the necessary next step from the, from the bystander? Go to the river. Go to the river and find a bucket. That's the, that's, that's the very difficult responsibility of living with an infant creator who wants a covenant and conversation, who wants to live with you, who wants you to be involved in the process of trying to perhaps alter. It's the cry. Avraham Avinu's cry is the cry of seeing a world of injustice and a world that ought to be just and the space between them is what Avraham Avinu is noticing in this Midrash. What our Kodesh Baruch is asking is, is, how will you involve yourself in changing that? A.B. But, but, but we don't see it in the Midrash. We talk about the palace being consumed. We talk about a fire. We talk about a palace. But the fire is not consuming the palace. I think it's a very critical idea. So is A.B. asking you, saying it hasn't been destroyed yet. It's almost like the burning bush for a second. But what is interesting is, is that it has not yet destroyed. Humanity and the world is is ultimately very resilient. But if we carry on letting it burn, it will destroy the world. It will destroy the world around us. Avraham Avinu and we, 
Look at the world at multiple stages of burning. And the question is, are we going to do anything about it? You have to have a chance. If it's burnt already, you can't do anything. That's why it's at the stage where... It's at the stage where we can still do things. And by the way, even when it gets further burnt, we still can do. Ultimately, Judaism is the perennial question mark on the status quo. The question mark on why it is that we can have a world of injustice which seems as such. To quote Rabbi Saxon his actual his words, and this is one paragraph again, every, every paragraph is so beautiful. This is in Source 3. The faith of Abraham begins in the refusal to accept either answer, for both contain a truth and between them there is a contradiction. The first accepts the reality of evil and the second the reality of God. The first says that if evil exists, God does not exist. The second says that if God exists, then evil does not exist. But supposing, supposing both exist, supposing they are both the palace and the flames. If this is so, and I've interpreted the, interpreted the Medrash correctly, then Judaism begins not in wonder what the world, that the world is, but in a protest that the world is not what it ought to be. <coughs> it is that cry, that sacred discontent, that Abraham's journey <coughs> begins. At the heart of reality, of, uh, at the heart of a reality is a contradiction between order and chaos, the order of creation, the chaos we create. There is no resolution to this conflict on the level of thought. It can be resolved only on the level of action. Such a powerful line. Only by making the world other than it is. When things are as they ought to be, then we have reached our destination. But that is not now. It is not now for Abraham, nor is it yet for us. What a powerful description. Avram Avinu, in a certain sense, is going to be that perennial traveler, the person who's continually lech lecha because the world is never perfect. The world is never where it ought to be. The world is so much to go. There's so much injustice. There's so much evil. There's so much inequality. There's so much godly, godlessness in the world. And while that exists, while the flames are burning, then Hashem is asking us, in a certain sense, I'm here. Are you here? That's really the question that Avram Avinu asks of us. What a very powerful perspective in a certain sense. That's the quest of anybody who follows in the path of Abraham and Sarah. Okay, tell me. That's like following up on the Nazi. We need to do something. We need, there has, it ha, it's a religion of protest, essentially. And that leads us to the next, the next, the next chapter where we move into Liora. You're right. So, so it's true. So, Leora, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like you're saying that necessarily doing means to say you get good. What you're saying is, is that when you see that there's a problem, our job in this world is to fix it. And we may not ever get to that point where we fully fix it ourselves, but if we put a few bricks into that building, we've poured out water over some of those flames, we've, made the, we've left the world in a better place than when we came. That's, that's going to be our job. Avram never fixed the world. But I've even started the process of fixing it. We're continuing that job. Doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that's going to reflect that every one of us is going to get good. That's not the, the answer. We can live very meaningless lives. We're going to try. That's a very, very hard thing to swallow. I, I, personally, yes, John. To, to, to Leora's point, imagine if somebody was handed a hardship that seems unfair. And the world came to that person's aid. You say, visiting a sick person takes away a percentage of that sickness. Eventually, doesn't that hardship kind of go away? The world well, we, have to, we, have to, we have to ask, that. that's a hard question to ask because it actually comes to the next point I'd like to raise is that, is that the human perspective of, of difficulty, the human perspective of suffering. And it doesn't always get answered. And perhaps we'd like it to, but it doesn't always get answered. 
So that actually leads us to the, this next point, and I want to come back to it because it's a little complex, what you're raising, Jonathan, what, in, in response to Liara's point. And this comes to the book. This book, this book, we're moving five years later. This, uh, the first book was published in the year 2000. We move on to Heal the Fractured, uh, to Heal the Fractured World, which was published in 2005. This book uh, um, was a book, actually, I think it was the first book I read of Rabbi Sachs. Um, I read many other things, and he, but this is the first book I read. And it was a book I really, in my soul, I knew that it needed to have existed. But I never knew who wrote it until I found it. So when I, when I finally came across this book, it suddenly answered so many questions that I had about the world at large. It's really a very important book. And it's, this, the, it's, it's uh, it, really a different perspective on reality as Judaism is a responsibility to the world at large. And he has a chapter, the second chapter, already at the very beginning, is what's called Faith as Protest. That's the name of the chapter, Faith as Protest. And this, this, this chapter takes a different angle. And just want to stop here to take a meta-awareness of what we're learning and how we're learning it. Rabbi Sachs was brilliant in so many different ways. One way he was, was as a parashan. Just the way he read the Torah, he had a really unique way of reading what we would glide over as you know, as ideas that we've been told, and he would look at them from a different angle in a very creative way. But he was also a philosopher and a theologian. And he was also an influence in the world. So he, all these different perspectives of him come together as we look at this. So here's where he starts in the second point. He, he says like the following. He, take, he starts off with an indictment that has been leveled against all of religion. This is an indictment um, which was an accusation from none other than Karl Marx. It was, uh, he originally wrote this in the, in this, in the um, 1850s when he, was, when he was formalizing his thought. And although he has a very um, elegant beard, um, he does not, he does, he's, he's, it's not a rabbinic beard, although it is true that his grandfather was a rabbi. And, uh, but nonetheless, he was, he was quite um, hostile to religion as a whole. And he makes the following argument against organized religion. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature the heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. To call them to give up their illusions about their condition is to call on them to give up the condition that requires illusions. Very powerful statement. He was obviously a very, very forward thinker and his ideas whipped up masses upon masses of people who were fighting against the nationalism and the imperialism of the time. The use of opium is very important at this point in time. The opium trade is at its height as we move through 1800s and the British Empire is doing very well. Thank you very much because of it um, at this point in time. We can supplant that with any other drug that we have today. The opiates today still are a problem but they come in different forms. And what he's essentially saying, and if you think about this for, for a moment, is that people will never change if they have religion. Because let's imagine you have this poor serf, this farmer in Russia, who's being abused by his overlord, who's taking in all the wealth off the back of this poor worker. And the worker suffers and the master beats him and starves him and underpays him and doesn't furnish him with the necessary requisite material to get him through the Russian winter. And every time an evil befalls this poor, this poor undeserving serf, the serf says, it is God's will. And then the serf continues to suffer immeasurably at the hands of injustice created by human beings. And the serf will never change the conditions they're in. Why? Because religion has, in a certain sense, taken away 
the feeling of suffering because it anesthetizes him or her to that experience. Therefore, there will be no protest. And if Karl Marx wants to change the status quo of evil overlords and people who are unfairly using millions of other people, you need to first wake up. You need to first realize that this is unjust. And to be able to do that, you need to stop smoking religion. That's what he say, essentially says. Right? That, and that's what, that's what Karl Marx argues about religion as a whole. Yes? Isn't that the whole approach of Christianity? You know, that, you know, you're suffering on the cross, so it's okay to make the people suffer. You know, just tell them, yeah, it's okay. I'm not... I, <laughs> I, so I can't... I can't speak or speak for Christianity because it's not my my uh, my area of of of, uh, of, uh, of expertise. I, so I don't know. In generally speaking, if you go if you take it to the thought of Nietzsche, Nietzsche would argue that in general religion is an artificial um, addition to the natural state of humanity. The natural state of humanity is that of, in a certain sense, bestiality or power, and those who are masters and those who are serfs. And religion was there to sort of temper that down. Right, which is an artificial expression, which is ultimately going to be removed, and he's, we're seeing that right now. And then ultimately, the power, the world, the realm of power and power games start again. So it, actually, he views uh, Nietzsche views Christianity and Judeo-Christian values as a way of like like Karl Marx as something which is artificially stopping people from it's it's introducing values which would stop the might over right perspective. So that's that's uh, that, that's the way he he, he looks at now. Good. So that's that's precisely the argument. So the question is, was Karl Marx right? Now, historically speaking, Karl Marx was absolutely wrong, because 150 years later, and millions of lives later, it doesn't seem to work, that his ideal paradise didn't seem to work out so well. Right? So after Stalin took over Russia, and if, if you look at what happened in China, who adopted his ideology hook, line, and sinker, it doesn't seem like humanity was so well equipped for, avoid, uh, for eradicating evil. In fact, more people died in an organized fashion under Stalin than they did under the Tsar. So we want us to, be, we want us to th take, a, take a break and say, Karl Marx, it sounds very nice. But historically speaking, I wonder if it really is. So the question, but the question is, is ideologically, in the realm of ideas, not experientially, because we've seen what experience has, has yielded. We see what, what the, the Chinese revolutions have done. We've seen what, what the Cultural Revolution did to people in China after the first round of a revolution in the 40s. Very complex time, all under the banner of equality and, uh, and equal rights. What does the Torah say about this? So it goes actually to this week's parasha. We now have moved from Lech Lecha, we moved to this coming week's parasha, and one of the most unusual conversations that really ever exists in all of the uh, human history. And it's a conversation which doesn't seem like it ought to exist, because how could anybody ever say the, the ideas that were, are in this conversation? Here's how we have it. We have this, uh, and again, we, we just read this. It's shiny, and we just imagine that it's, of course, natural. HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends three guests to Abraham and Sarah to herald to them three things. There's going to be a child which is born, there's going to be the destruction of Saddam, and there's going to be, the, and the, one of them is a messenger to give refuah healing to Abraham. Three messengers. At the end of this first episode, one of them leaves, that's the herald to the child, and two continue on to Saddam. Here's what we hear about this at this point. And it's just important to read it because we, we're, we, we sometimes don't appreciate this. Hashem, Avraham is standing there, and Hashem says, Can I possibly hold back telling Avraham what I'm about to do? 
He's going to be this powerful nation. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through him. I know in the future he's going to command his children to do the values of God, the way of God, which includes righteousness and justice. In order to bring upon Avraham what I intended for him. Hashem now reveals what it is going through his mind, so to speak. Sodom is doing so much terrible, um, so much injustice. I'm going to see if they've really reached that, have reached the benchmark worthy of destruction or not. I'll go see. I'm going to now investigate what is happening. And then the angels now go to Sodom. Avram is left standing in front of Hashem. And then he says, And this is where the strange dialogue begins. Human to the Almighty. Hashem, you're going to consume the righteous alongside the, the evil. Because 50, you're going to ignore 50 righteous people. 10 per city, you're not going to, to, to give them the space. How could you do it? God forbid. Literally, God forbid, right? From doing such a thing. The finite says to the infinite, such a claim is unimaginable. To kill the righteous with the evil, making them the same in the equation. God forbid. Will the just, the, the judge of all the earth, not do justice? I mean, where does Avram have the right to say this? How in the world could he possibly, could he possibly say this? But let's deepen the question, because yeah, here's how it goes. The only reason. Avraham has the right to ask this question is because God gave him the license to ask this question. Let's go back to the beginning of this whole episode. Who is Hashem speaking to at the beginning in the first five psukim of this, of, of this section? The answer is to? He's not speaking to Avraham. That's the interesting thing. He's speaking to himself. This is, this is, this is dramatically speaking, this is what's called a soliloquy. Right? Hashem is saying, will I... Will I hide from Abraham what that I'm doing? He's speaking to himself, so to speak. But who is standing next to him? Is Abraham. It's Lahavdil, Elephavdalus. Hamlet is behind, right? The, the, sorry, Polonius is behind the curtain, listening, right, to the soliloquy of Hamlet. Lahavdil, Elephavdalus. Hashem is presenting this idea in the presence of Abraham. What does Hashem expect of Abraham once he allows Abraham to know that he's about to destroy Sodom? is he is engaging Avraham to question him. And not only is that, but listen to this. He says, the reason why I should not hide this from Avraham is because he's going to command his children my value system. What's my value system? Two words. What are those two words? Tzedakah umishpat. Justice and, sorry, tzedakah is righteousness and justice. Isn't it interesting? that the two words that Avraham uses to argue against Hashem are exactly that. Tzadik, tzadik, tzadik. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, how can you kill those who are righteous? Don't you value righteousness, God? And then the most poignant 
aspect of his, the phrase of his, of his argument is, Hashofet Kolo Aretz Lo Mishpat. The beginning and the ending of his primary argument is about justice, justice and righteousness. It's as if HaKadosh Baruch Hu was setting Avram Avinu up to ask these questions. He was allowing him in. So we ask ourselves, how could Avram Avinu make this argument? The answer is, because Hashem asked him to. Hashem set up the this, this stage for Avram Avinu to question these values in Hashem, which makes a lot of sense. But the problem with that is, is that we fast forward one chapter to when the angels arrive in Sodom, are taken into the house of Lot, and then suddenly the next, the, the, later that evening, we have the people around the, the house, to surround the house, demanding and an a, a action so vile that in fact the name of that action has, become, has come from the place to sodomize those people, right? These guests violating propriety, morality, the, um, uh, uh, the, the value, the, in, the independence of foreigners in a, in a place. That, that, at that moment, the Torah emphasizes that it was everybody in the city. It says every single person in Sodom was around the house. What is the Torah essentially telling us is that Avraham Avinu's argument already fell flat. Meaning to say, what was Avraham Avinu doing? He was getting up on his little soapbox and he was saying, there might be 50 tzaddikim. Well, we know in reality there wasn't one, not a single good apple in that entire barrel. That's what the Torah is telling us. So here we go. Now the question becomes stronger. So why is it that Hashem is presenting this argument in front of He's telling Avraham Avinu what he's about to do. He gives them the tools to argue against it. Avraham Avinu indeed argues that, but in the end of the day, it was all an exercise in futility because Hashem knows that there's nobody good there. So why allow Avraham That's very cruel. To allow Avraham Avinu in, and you can imagine, you know this feeling, when you have a very difficult conversation with somebody that's really, really important to you, it's very hard to do because it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of trust to argue against somebody that you really appreciate. And here Avram Avinu, now this is not a, a, a colleague, this is God Almighty. Avram Avinu is putting himself in the ring here to make an argument. You can imagine how much this jeopardizes his relationship with HaKadosh Baruch how much it could, how much risk is taken in this argument, and Hashem is allowing him into this. For what? For what reason? Well, you do your job. What was that? We have to do our part. It's about Hashem decides the rest. Ah, so, so it's, a good, it's a good point to me. It just happens to be, it seems like it's unfair from Hashem's perspective when He knows the answer. If, in fact, there were 50 tzaddikim, then okay, but there weren't. So one second, so, so, let's uh, take, it, take it further. So it comes back to the argument about evil, because it all comes back to the, to the argument about evil. And we're going to go to a person who, who, who perhaps his name sounds so familiar because he becomes the paradigmatic expression of, of, of godlessness, of atheism in the entire Talmud. And his name is a Greek philosopher by the name of, the name of Epicurus. Right? And we know that because the typical name for a heretic in Gomorrah Paralance is Apicorus. Right? Yeah, actually, so one of the arguments is that it refers to this Greek philosopher. Listen to his argument. Don't leave the shir until after the... Okay. <laughs> 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 he has a rabbi quoting Apikursus right in the middle of the shir. Okay, so don't leave after this. He has, he has his argument, and it's a very, very poignant argument. Again, it's a very Greek binary argument. Here's what he says. If God is willing to prevent evil, but not able, then he's not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing, then he, is, then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing, then when, whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing, then why call him God? 
It's a very, you know, cute kind of, uh, sort of like, you know, you know, very basic, you know, we draw quadrants, you know, we have like, you know, we put a little box and, you know, we have a column for evil, we have a column for power, you know, and everything like, sort of doesn't fit, fit, fit so well, right? So what he's saying is that, that the world can't exist in any of the four quadrants, essentially, right? Because the, the truth of the matter is, is that we don't have to look too far to see evil, right? There's, there's a lot of bad stuff in the world and the newspapers will, will, will tell us about it in, uh, and, uh, all, all the time. But forget the newspapers now, just go back in history, right? And look in history and look at the evil that's befallen humanity and that humanity has created over the course of history. And it, you know, so, so where was God, right? So if he was all good and he's all powerful, then why is, it, why is he not stopping that? That's the question that Epicurus asks. So in this chapter, in this, this perspective, again, Rasax is framing the same question. He argues again that there are two camps. And he says that, that by the way, just to appreciate this, in the realm of paganism, this is not a question. Why? Very simply put, is because in the realm of paganism, there's a pantheon and there are many different gods and powers. There's the storm god, and there's the rain god, and there's the sea god. And ultimately, if something goes wrong, it was somebody else's department, right? So it's like, it's much easier, right? It's like bureaucracy, right? I was like, I'm so sorry. You made a sacrifice to me, but you know, Yenam over there was, right? So that's, that's the way it really, that, that it works. It's the problem is when you have, mono, by the way, you know, we, we think it's all, it's all um, we think it's all, all fun and games. It's interesting just to, this is such a, a, a sort of hard pill to swallow. Listen, to the, listen to, uh, to the way he describes it. He says, today, we would speak of the, glo this, this is our translation, this is trans transcri transcription to us. Today, we would speak of the global economy, terror, technological process in the international arena, the media and the biosphere. They control our lives but cannot be controlled. They are the work of a single, not a, uh, they are not the work of a single mind, but the unpredictable outcome of billions of decisions. They clash, sometimes producing order to other times chaos, leaving human beings, human, uh, human beings as victims or spectators at forces at best indifferent, at worst hostile to humankind. So before we start poo-pooing the pagans, do we speak the same language as the pagans about uncontrollable forces, about the market, right? Uh, the invisible hand. Well, wait a second. <laughs> so who's in control here first? Right, so just, uh, just to appreciate, we, we just do it in more sophisticated fashion. But in the realm of paganism with all these uncontrollable forces, then yes, they do, then evil exists because there's chaos and there's order and it just, it, 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 there's an ebb and flow. In the realm of monotheism, when everything falls under one rubric and there's one top of that pyramid and there's one God is in control of it, this question becomes a problem. That's where Epicurus is starting. So now, here's, so, so what do you do with this? So how do you get to, so to speak, this, this, these, these, this, this binary option? How, how do you uh, get around this? So the one answer is, is the answer that Nietzsche or Karl Marx would give, which is, <laughs> really, there is no God, right? And as long as you pretend there is a God, you're going to keep, you know, in the catharsis and, the, and the, this uh, opiate stage, uh, sort of uh, illusion of, of reality, and you're never going to change anything because there really ain't no objective order. There's no objective God of reality. It is what it is. We're living, we're living in a world which is, which is very complex and this is why evil exists because if evil were, if God were to have a problem with evil then he should have done something about it and he doesn't and he's, he's all, not all powerful, not all good. Simple as that. This is the world of Nietzsche. This is the world, the, world, the, world, the world of social Darwinism. By the way, yielding Nazi Germany. Right, this is, that's where it comes from. Germany was not a Christian state. It was a social Darwin um, ideology. It's very complex. There's no God. So... Look at the look what look what happens in that realm. That's the, uh, one of the answers to Epicurus. Epicurus. The other answer is if you go in the different direction, which is that no. As similarly as we as discussed beforehand, um, as he as he argues in, in the previous the previous book in the previous chapter, that really the uh, he quotes Keats who, the, uh, who says that the world is the veil of soul making, 
Really, God has, has a way of trying to use this world as a way that we don't really know the full picture. If you look at it in a longitudinal perspective, you understand why slavery is necessary. You understand why carnage, why world wars are necessary. Because God has a longer term picture. We just don't have the... We live what? We have a little, you know, a little, a little bandwidth of a few years on this planet and we think we, we have the audacity to be able to ask questions. Look at it from the perspective of not 10 years, not 20 years, not a decade, not even a century. Look at the perspective of millennia, perhaps even beyond that. Once you have that, then you can, then you can start talking about things. What? You're gonna, you, you think you really understand what's what's going on you have no perspective of the general the general larger perspective in a certain sense these are the two perspectives he talked about before and palace but no flames flames are no palace right those those and that's the two ways of presenting the same, the same the same idea just in a more sophisticated fashion here in this in this chapter so what, what do we do with this what do we do what, what do we, where does judaism exist he argues that judaism exists in obviously none of those two although it might be it might be alluring to suggest that um, that judaism adopts the second and we certainly see Jewish thinkers who suggest the second. He argues that Judaism doesn't really hold that. That's certainly not what the Torah says. Because if you look in the Hebrew Bible, the Torah never says that answer. The Torah never says, don't worry, there's going to be a here afterwards. Don't worry, there'll be a longitude of picture. Don't worry, somehow it'll get better. That's not what the Torah says. Listen to the words of the prophets. Listen to what they say. I mean, as an example, Yirmiyahu in Saul 7. Sadiqat Hashem, Hashem, you're righteous. Ki ariv I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you the justice. Why do the richest ways of the rich, wicked prosper? Why are the workers of treachery at ease? Chavakuk, Moshe, Yeshayahu. The prophets, the greatest of our nation, asked questions and they didn't say, oh, it's all right, you know, perhaps someday we'll understand. They never said that. They asked, they shouted, they cried. That means to say, they did not fit into that binary option of one side versus the other. So where, where does it, where, how, how does this work? How does this all come together? So in this case, he actually quotes Rav Nachman Rabinovich, who is his Rebbe, who says the following, and this is a, such a beautiful thing, such a beautiful perspective. When Moshe Rabbeinu arrives at the snet, the burning bush, this burning bush, he, it says he turns his face, he doesn't want to see the bush. Right, he, 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 he moves away. He comes to it, but he, he, he avert, averts his eyes. Why? Why does he do that? And the argument that he makes is that if a person were to really understand the burning throughout history, a person who would really understand the suffering of humanity and of this world throughout history, then in a certain sense, they would lose their humanity. Because they would see it so profoundly and they would see the longitudinal perspective so much, so clearly that they would no longer be human to be able to appreciate the human suffering. Let's think about it in the following terms. You know, anybody who has to, happens to have to be a, a parent, anybody who happens to be a politician, anybody who ha happens to have some sort of leadership position must mute themselves. A doctor, a surgeon has to mute themselves to the cries, to the, 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 the visceral reactions and emotions of the person they're trying to help. A, a parent has to, has to put their child through very difficult situations because it's for the best of that child. And they have to, in a certain sense, mute themselves have to mute those feelings of when they take them to the doctor for whatever procedure is necessary for the best of their child or whatever necessary um, behavior altering and uh, therapy necessary and it's difficult but they have to do that and a doctor the same way if a doctor were to be concerned about the fear of the patient going before going into surgery they would never do the surgery on that patient and the politician has to make decisions about a country and yes when they have to make a decision about war and the war is necessary there will be people who will die and when they make a decision economically which is going to lose people's jobs but it's necessary for the country, there are people who are going to lose their jobs. 
And if a politician was sensitive to all of these cries all the time, they would never be able to do what's necessary for the better of that, of that, of that entity. And that's true, that's true in general. But I, what Amosha Rabbeinu is saying essentially is, I don't want to enter into the realm of the bigger picture, because once I enter in the realm of the biggest picture of God, which is understanding why the bush is burning, I will lose my humanity. I will not be able to appreciate the cries and the suffering of those who are going through it at the same time. They say of a Hasidic Rebbe who was asked to survive the Holocaust, they say, he was interviewed, and the interviewer said, Would you, do, you, do you not have any questions with, to God about what you're going through? And he says, I have so many questions. He says, in fact, if I were to ask them, God Almighty would invite me to, uh, to, uh, to, to come to him with the questions that I have. He says, but I prefer to live in this world with questions than in heaven with the answers. That's the perspective of humanity. And that's exactly what's happening. Just listen to this, 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 this just, uh, unbelievable interpretation of what's going on with Avraham again. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, coming back to Tibi's point, just to validate this, uh, this idea, just to appreciate how significant this is. HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows that Saddam is worthy of destruction. What's called in, 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 in thought, Malay Sa'asam. They've reached the, the, the benchmark of destruction. They are so rotten to the core. They're such an unjust, self-centered society. They no longer deserve to exist. But that's in God's book. That's when he's done the spiritual accounting. Upon earth, that's not yet ratified until the moment and until the time that the human being themselves is able to ratify that. HaKadosh Baruch Hu needs to present it, so to speak, has chosen to need to present it in front of humanity for Avraham Avinu to protest it from the human perspective. And only once the human perspective has the opportunity of arguing against it, the cry against injustice, is it, so to speak, real in this world? Is it just in this world? Just to quote, quote, quote the words of our sex in this section over here, and this is in, uh, on page four, the very top of the page, and he comes back to Karl Marx. Opium of the people, nothing was ever less an opiate than this religion of sacred discontent, of dissatisfaction with the status quo. It was Abraham, then Moses, Amos, and Isaiah who fought on behalf of justice and human dignity, confronting priests and kings, even arguing with God himself. That note, first sounded by Abraham, never died. It was given its most powerful expression in the book of Job, surely the most dissident book ever to be included in the canon of sacred scriptures. It echoes again and again in rabbinic midrash, in the Kinnot, in the Middle Ages, in the Hasidic tales, in the literature of the Holocaust. In Judaism, faith is not the acceptance but protest against the world that is in the name of the world that is you know, not yet but ought to be. Faith lies not in the answer but the question. And the greater the human being, the more intense the question. That explains, by the way, why it's Moshe and Yirmiyahu and Yeshayahu who ask those questions, not just the regulars on the streets. The Bible is not a metaphysical opium, but the, its opposite. Its aim is not to transport the believer to a private heaven. Instead, its impassioned, sustained desire is to bring heaven down to earth. Until we have done this, there is work still to do. Brilliant! And that's what Avraham is doing. That's why Hashem is showing Avraham an imperfect situation which is unjust and is going to be slated for destruction. But until Avraham has the chance to fight it, it still remains unjust because it's not upon this earth. It's only in heaven. And that's the second opportunity. Such a brilliant in, in interpretation of what's going on over here. This is the religion, the faith of protest. We have to live with the discontent of that palace. We have to live with the discontent of the flames and the two of them together and ask, ourselves, ask Hashem, why? What can we do about this? Is this really fair that you're doing this? What can I do to change it? Yes, Abi. So, <coughs> just to point out, when Hashem confronts Avraham, he says, Hashem Omar, throughout the, the whole narrative, it's yes. Hashem, Hashem, Hashem. 
not Elohim, that you know he's he even though God Very good. knows that they're like you said that there that there is no there is nobody there that's righteous or whatever. But he what he wants to you know So in the same idea he wants Abram to ask for I mean he wants Abram to ask for Mercy, Correct. Even, even though, From the human perspective. Right, so, so therefore, in, the, in later generations, when we fall, right, we're able also to ask for God to temper, you know, you know, the, the, the what's Right. You're, you're doing a you're, you're doing a longitudinal thing. You're, you're, you're extending it, even without that. But you're right. This this is going to be the fractal of necessary. We'll call it wherewithal for us to do the same thing. Right? And that's we're coming from that middle of Rachel. I mean, he's setting us up to ask the questions of the value systems that he has. I want to get to one last point, and I don't want to, to belabor this, but there's, it is interesting, he does make an additional point. This is just, again, from the area of Parshanut. He's <laughs> so brilliant. He says the following, if you read Rishon and Shani in Parshas Vayera, you will notice that they actually are one continuum. The first aliyah is about the heralding of Avraham Avinu having a child. And then it says that Avraham Avinu is still standing there and this next conversation happens. Rabbi Sachs argues that in fact they are the same parasha because what Hashem is telling Avraham is what it means to be a parent. And that's why he talks about He doesn't have a child. There's not even a fetus at this point in time. But now Hashem is telling him that this is what it means to be a child, to laman, to, to talk about tzedakah and mishpat, which means to say that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is saying, this is what it means to be a parent. A parent has to stand back and allow their child to ask those questions sometimes because if you clamp down every time there's a problem and you fix everything every time they don't make their bed and don't clean up the basement, they're not going to grow up to be mature children. They'll be pampered, inapt children. That's what it means to be a parent. Is what I'm, what I'm doing to you right now. I'm allowing you the space. So it's really a continuum, the first lesson of parenting following the heralding of becoming a parent. Just so, it's such a brilliant way of looking at this. Now let's take it one step further in the most recent, well not the most recent book, but the, most, uh, the, uh, the one that I'm focusing on, which is the most recent. This was published in 2011. So we went from 2000 to 2005 to 2011. This is the great partnership. I pre-ordered this when it actually first came out. This is Rabbi Sachs' um, work on science. And it is such a profound perspective. But in it, nonetheless, he has a chapter called The Problem of Evil. And in this chapter, he, he takes at it, uh, looks at it from a different angle, coming back to what Baruch had mentioned a little bit earlier. And he says the following. He quotes the Rambam in Mor Nevuchim. The Rambam says that all of evil in this world can be subcategorized into three, play, three um, silos. And this, this is so, so true if you think about it. The, the Rambam says the following. I just quoted the Rambam in Moran Nevochim. He says in Source 9, Number one, Nature produces evil. So as an example, there are earthquakes, there are tsunamis. That is a function of tectonic plates and shifts. Tectonic plates and shifts are necessary for the, for the organism of life. If we go further into the future, there are many d different mutations of genes which create many genetic illnesses. They are, in a certain sense, necessary offshoot components of the mutation of regular life. Right? They, they are, these are not, for a system of life to work, there are what are called collateral problems with the life system. And that's what exists. If you are not to have the problems, you are not to have life itself. There are many what are called natural evil in the world as, uh, as it exists. That's what the Rabbim says, number one. Number two, on the next page, in the next box, the second category of evil is what human beings do to, them, to each other. 
right? This one beats that one, this one steals from this one, this country wars with another one. That's the second category. He goes on to more, more detail. And finally, I'm in Ashlish in the third box. The third is Rov. The greatest category is not evil done to us by nature, not evil done to us by other people, but evil done to us by ourselves. We don't look after ourselves, we don't eat healthily, we don't look over, we, we, uh, we, we smoke, we don't take care of ourselves. God, why? 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 Why me? Says the, says the Rambam, why, why you? Why? Why? Why did you do that? Why did you, why emotionally did, did you destroy those, the, the, those relationships around you and complain about it? Why did you uh, d uh, um, eat in such a way? Why do you take such drugs and now wonder why you have these uh, vestigial effects later on in your life? Why? That's, that, that's, a, that's a question the Ramam asks. So if you think about this for, for a moment, what the Ramam is essentially saying is most evil that exists in the world is as a function of human beings. Think about that for a moment. Yes, there's the first category. There are natural um, occurrences, which by the way, we are, uh, we are, uh, <laughs> I know this is very unusual to hear a Trump saying this, but um, there are certain natural causes in the world which are being exacerbated because of humans even today, right? So it's, it's, uh, we're, we're helping along the first case as well through, uh, through our, our unbridled capitalism. Um, but nonetheless, this, if you think about this for a moment, most of evil comes down to humanity. So then the question becomes is, so why evil? Why, why is it there? And it comes back to the, to the, question, the question of Baruch. If it comes to the natural, natural evil, natural evil is a byproduct of the forces of life. These are collateral exceptions. To, to the force of life. One doesn't never want to be that collateral exception, God forbid. But the point is, is that it's a necessary prerequisite of life. Human beings. Could Akshem create a world in which human beings did not have the capacity to do evil? He could, but it would essentially be a, a large room of robots praising God, right? The whole point was that he decided to create a world which had the space and capacity to be able to choose evil. And they are exercising that right exceptionally throughout the course of history, right? That's what human beings do. So let's, 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 let's take this a little further. So therefore, in this, in this whole reality, so what is the point of the human being then essentially in this experiment? Is to make the choice to do it better. When, 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 and this is our success throughout his writings. People say, why evil? God, where were you? Where were you in, in such a terrible episode? And Hashem says to us, where were you? Where were you? What were you doing? I gave you the right. I didn't interrupt when you were doing all these things because that's the whole point. I gave you the free will and you killed millions of people. Where were you? Where were the people around? Where were the countries of the world in 1938 who didn't open a single door to the Jews? Where were you? Where were you human beings? What do you do? You're asking me? I gave you. I allowed you to do what you're supposed to be doing human beings. What did you do? Where were you? That's the question that our sex is. It's turned on its, on its right because that's the place where evil comes from. And he says, that in fact, that he quotes a, this is a true, true, true to his form, he quotes a, 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 a book called The Meaning of History by Nicholas Berdiev, written in 1923, who argues that the Jews are in fact wrong. Here's what he argues in the, on top of page six. The Jewish people in their primitive conception life were obsessed by the passionate idea of justice and its terrestrial fulfillment. I believe that this specific idea of the Jewish people, this demand of, for justice to be realized on earth together with the aspiration towards the future, predetermined the whole complexity of Jewish historical destiny. The Greeks, who were typical Aryans, never, had never been obsessed by this idea of justice. If it was not absolutely foreign to the Hellenic spirit, it, at least it was never more than a minor preoccupation. These Jews, they're always trying to make the world better. Karl Marx in his own way was doing the same thing, although he didn't realize it. And he went down the wrong pathway to a certain degree, right? 
But everybody was trying to, 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 to fix the world. Jews want to fix the world. He says, but that's too much. He goes on to further. Christian history att attempts to solve, oh, sorry, the next sentence. At the same time, we may observe, along with the religiously justifiable principle animating this intense Jewish striving after truth, justice, and happiness on earth, an unwarrantable principle of conflict with God, an unwillingness to accept the will of God. Meaning, Jews, chill out. Calm down a little bit. Stop trying to fix the world. Don't you know that God really wants it to be this way? Which essentially goes back to, can we see? Maybe the flames aren't really real. Maybe God just wants the planet to be as it is. Maybe God had a plan. There's a longitudinal plan. The plan which Moshe Rabbeinu didn't want to see when he looked at the, the burning bush. The plan that Avraham Avinu did not want to see when he heard about the, the, the slating of destruction of Saddam. You know what? You know what? Go accept the will of God. There's a bigger plan from the perspective of Christianity. That's what, that's what, he's, what, he's, what he's arguing. You know, Sack says, he wrote this in 1923. What would he have said after 1945? Will of God, Holocaust? Mm. That, that's what, also will of God, Nicholas? You, th you think that that's what, you know, just, just stand back. Maybe we just should stop pro protesting because of, because, of, uh, because of that, really? So that, that and as Rabbi Sachs says, my own view is that God did not want us to seek, in, um, uh, is that if God did not want us to seek justice in this world, why did he create it and why did he pronounce it good? If you do not believe in the physical existence of, bless, of a blessing, why are we here? As a punishment for what crime? Berdiev wrote in 1923, would he have manifested this the his thesis once the full extent of the final solution had come clear? That suffering is to be accepted as God's inscrutable will and design? There are such views in Judaism as well in Christianity, but I, for one, prefer the theology of protest. We must accept only that which we cannot change. And to finally conclude in his own words, so evil exists because we exist as free beings in a physical world with all the accidents of matter and pain or uh, and the pain of mortality. What difference then does it make whether our attitude to evil is one of acceptance or of protest? It makes all the difference. Abraham's protest and Moses and Jeremiah's were not the mere cries of wasted, wasted in the wind. They were cries born in the cognitive dissonance between the world, that, the, the world that is and the world that ought to be. The only way of resolving this dissonance is a deed. That is the difference between faith as acceptance and faith as protest. The only way to deal with slavery is to lead the people to freedom. The only way to confront the evils of the polis is to build more than just social order with special emphasis on loving the stranger. Again, it's the same idea but developed over the, the span of these 10, 11 years between these different books. This perspective on challenging the status quo. Our job here is to partner with Hashem when he looks out the birah and he says, I'm here, what are we doing about that? Are we able to accept the palace and the flames and to question our Kodesh Baruch to say, what can we do to fix it, to make this world a better place? That's the, that's the question that, that uh, our sacks challenge us. Just a profound perspective. We'll continue in the next few weeks on this topic. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a wonderful, wonderful, meaningful day. Rabbi Hananiah, Menachem, Amaratzah, Kodesh Baruch.